The thoughts and opinions on Just Some Podcast are of the hosts and guests and do not represent the views of organizations that employ them or they volunteer for. They are also not responsible for spontaneous black holes or nuclear wars that may occur. You have been warned. The award-winning podcast that's never won an award. Downloaded and listened to around the world. Join the conversation on our social media. An educational experience that'll make you laugh. You're listening to Just Some Podcast. And here's your host, Ben and Tom. Welcome, 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 everybody, to another fun-filled and exciting episode of Just Some Podcast. This is Tom. Hey, this is Ben. Tom, man, how's it going, bud? Well, just for everybody to know, this is the second time we've recorded this intro, because yet again, in a effort to sabotage me, technology has decided to try and screw me over, and even though I hit save settings and all that stuff so that I wouldn't sound like a bag full of assholes when I talked again, somehow it managed to flip back to internal mic, and we got halfway through the intro before producer and Ben were like, hey, Tom, uh, check your mic, and... Oh boy. So yeah, so apparently I'm going to have to like permanently tattoo on my hand check settings before every episode. <laughs> hey, it's all right. We uh we figured it out and we had a hell of a banter and you'll never hear it, but hey, it's great. <laughs> yeah, it was amazing. I'm pretty sure we figured out cold fusion for nuclear power, but unfortunately yeah. that's lost to the world. It's on the cutting room floor now. Yeah. There's a second Peace Prize or Nobel Prize. I guess it's not technically a Peace Prize. It's a Nobel Prize. But there's a second one we could have got. But I'm not going to take credit for this one because nobody else is going to hear it. Right. So yeah. there's that. But other than that, no, it's it's been good just dealing with uh, lots of flu at work and uh, this weather pattern that one day is producing snow and 30 degrees and the next day it's 55 and raining. Yeah, that's most of the continental United States, I think, right now. The weather is just crazy, and it kind of reminds me of that old uh, Chris Farley skit on uh, Saturday Night Live where he's like uh, dressed like a professional wrestler, and he's like, I am El Nino, which is Spanish for the Nino. <laughs> so Yeah, extremely. Oh, my gosh. Ben, do you, do you think we should talk about, or maybe just bring up, the other big thing that's happening besides the completely obvious climate change that's happening in the world as we know it, what what other things should we be talking about? Well, if you follow us on some of our social media, you'll see that we have been talking about some big changes that may be coming to the show. And teaser, we're not ready to tell you yet. <laughs> but there are going to be some big changes potentially coming. And Jason and John, hell, who knows? Maybe we'll change the music. Maybe we'll go back to the cheesy music just for them. Uh, yeah, I know how Jason and John, our music editors, are just clamoring to hear the uh, old intro. I, I know that. Uh, we'll have to get our brain trust of Sam and Kyle together as well, and maybe we'll all come to a conclusion and 
see what's happening with that. Are probably going to be some big changes coming to the show. We're going to try to do some things that are going to make the show better because that's what we strive for is to make this a better listening experience for everyone involved. Yeah. I mean, it's not quite as big as, you know, getting your microphone set up correctly so you don't sound like an asshole the whole time. It's, But it's up there. It's close. It's in very that close. realm. Very, very close. Given that we're recording this for the second time now. Um, <laughs> well, Tom, I guess since I said social media, we should probably get that out there. So if you want to find out or hear more about what this potential big news for Just Some Podcast could be, make sure you follow us on all of our social media sites. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, all at Just Some Podcast. Or you can find us on the web, www.justsomepodcast.com. Or you can email us, admin at justsomepodcast.com. Tom, what else can they do? Well, they can give us ratings and reviews on any of those social media sites. They can share any of that social media and help spread the word of Just Some Podcast for Advanced Practitioners. Also, they can go to our website. At the bottom of the website, there's an affiliate link for Amazon Shopping. You click on that. It's free. It takes you back to the Amazon page. It's like we're never there. And then you can just shop. But I'm always kind of there. Like, I'm always going to be in the back corner of your room, just kind of, you know, blankly staring. But nothing too creepy, just slightly creepy. Yeah, creeper. Um, I I want to point out, Ben, that we talked about this in pre-production, that our Amazon affiliate link is being clicked on quite often, and, and that's super helpful. We really appreciate that, guys. To- totally honestly do. But... I don't know if Ben's getting all of it, but I don't seem to get a ton of feedback. I mean, I do get some, but I, good or bad, we really would love to hear what your thoughts are on the show. And if there's a question, if there's a topic matter, if there's something you want us to go over again, like we could, we could even do that on the show, maybe just do like some listener mail or something and kind of say, Hey, these are some things that have been talked about or asked and let's review that. Uh, we would love to do something like that, but you got to reach out to us. So please make sure you do that. Yeah. And I would like to throw out a special, Hey, if you're out there message, you know, we are downloaded all over the world, Tom, which still just amazes the shit out of me that people all over the place are listening to me and yours dumbass, but it boggles my mind every day. If you're a nurse practitioner or you're in the medical field and you're in one of these foreign countries outside the United States, get a hold of us. If you want to come on the show, let's hear about how things are different where you're at versus where we're at. I think that would be some interesting, interesting podcasting. So if you're out there and you want to talk about the difference between you know, how being a nurse practitioner in Australia is versus how we do it here and kind of compare notes and you want to do that on the show, hell, reach out to us. Let us know. We'd love to have you on the show. Yeah, it's still amazing to me that not only have we been downloaded, well, by the time you hear this, over 10,000 times, which still, yeah, still, wow, 10,000 times. The fact that there's someone in Nepal or Brazil or New Zealand, Australia, you know, Ireland, people are listening to us all over the world. It just still kind of makes it go, holy crap. I have no idea why. I mean. All I did was sleep in a Holiday Inn Express last night. And, <laughs> and for the, those of you that remember those commercials, you'll get that joke. But otherwise, it's still an amazing thing. And I just want to make the best show possible for advanced practitioners, for anybody in the medical field, for those not in the medical field, 
that are trying to gain some insight into what we do or how we do it. Anybody listening, I think I can speak for Ben and I on this. We want to do the best show possible. So please let us know and, and we will do everything possible to make that connection and get back to you or whatever we need to do. And speaking of the show, we are going to kind of switch it up a little bit this week. We are not going to do a story that you may have missed. And that's not because we couldn't find one. Mainly it's because we have Jeff back on the show this time. And we actually recorded it all in one blog. And you'll hear, as Kyle and I have been editing, uh, we make reference to like the State of the Union address. I mean, that's when we recorded with Jeff. We actually talked to Jeff for two and a half hours, I think, Tom. It was a great conversation. We had to obviously break that up because you're not going to listen to this show for two and a half hours straight. <laughs> so we you know, did the first episode on getting published, which is very important, particularly for advanced practitioners and getting good information out like Jeff did. But we originally brought him on to talk about diabetes, and that's what this episode is going to be on. And this guy is amazing. He can drill down diabetes better than I personally have ever read or heard anywhere else and that's not just bragging because he's on our show i mean it's legitimate talking to him the wealth of knowledge he has on it and second i would like to point out that i actually have spread this tool around i was speaking to another nurse practitioner and we're talking about some diabetes management and i said hey hold on i actually know where there's an award-winning article on how to use uh or an updated uh, version of management and made sure she got a copy. So this is a great episode for anyone. Even if you know, or you think you know everything about diabetes, I guarantee you, you're going to learn something listening to this episode. Yeah. I mean, we, he goes very, very deep into the pathophysiology behind diabetes and the eight ways that beta cells uh, can fail. And it's just, they don't just wear out. They don't just wear I did ask that question. <laughs> but, yeah, they don't just wear out. And not only does he go into the patho and you're like, okay, you kind of you get down in the weeds with the patho. And you know, we've all been through pathophysiology class, and sometimes it can be a little dry. But then whenever we take it into the medications for diabetes, it makes so much more sense whenever he starts explaining why we use this GLP-1 and when you understand the pathophysiology behind it. I'm still sifting through all the notes from that show. So it'll probably be another two, three, ten years for me to get to all of it. But, you know, eventually I plan on trying to understand all that. So it seems important. Well, yeah, eventually, yeah. Eventually. Let's jump back into the Jeff episode, and we're going to go deep, deep, deep in diabetes. You will notice the microphone changing for Tom here because... The intro, we're recording on the good microphone, and the show, Tom had figured out. Was not. <laughs> but. Yeah, oh God, still. It it actually pains me to hear myself now when I'm not, I mean, it pains me to hear myself, period, but at least it's tolerable on mic. We got that, we're, we're ironing those bugs out. And the good news is, this is the last episode that. Tom should sound like a bucket of assholes. After this, we should all be on the mic and great. Like yeah. butter. Like butter. All right, without any further ado, here's Jeff. Is, uh, Jeff. Try that again there, Spivey. Right. Without any further ado, here is the 
Jeff episode on diabetes. Hope you enjoy. All right, well, so with the publication of articles and having the author of the year on the show and the non-author of the year with uh, my co-host, <laughs> we uh, and then shot across the bow. Yeah, exactly. Starting right, right. The very first sentence is yeah. yeah oh. So we went along with talking about publication that we didn't actually get into the diabetes talk, which is what we wanted to actually bring Jeff on for. So you know, we're welcoming him back to the show, and we'll actually cover that this time. So that's, Jeff, that's where I say award-winning I'm, author. That's where I say I'm glad to be back. <laughs> <laughs> So. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I, I, I missed that part in the script. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Jeff, let's break down some of the pathophysiology since you're talking about how you really like to go into it. So let's get into the nuts and bolts okay. of the pathophysiology of diabetes, and let's just get started on that conversation. Okay. So we talk about eight core defects, and that's where DeFranzo's work started back in 2009, or you, I guess you could talk ended in 2009 because he really talked about how insulin resistance developed. So let's start with hepatic insulin resistance. It starts with glucose overproduction, despite the fact that we have hyperinsulinemia. So we've got too much insulin in the blood anyway. So we shouldn't have glucose still being produced. That should be down-regulated. We have 2.5 to 3.5 to almost three times the normal levels of insulin in the blood. This results in about two milligrams per kilogram, I'm sorry, two and a half milligrams per kilogram per minute of production of glucose. Normal production is two milligrams per kilogram per minute. We then have impaired suppression of hepatic glucose production by insulin as it, produ as it occurs following a meal. So you have, a, you have the meal, the glucose production by the liver should be down-regulated because you have increased accretion of insulin by the pancreas, correct? Right. This is where you say yes or nod. Yes. Because it's a podcast and everybody can see you nod. No, we're not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I have a glazed over on my eyeball look already. Like, oh. <laughs> okay. So, so stop and think about what the problem of diabetes is. The base problem is too much sugar in the blood. Why is, why is it there? What, where's the sugar coming from? The liver's job is to produce sugar, correct? Who calls for sugar? Yes. The brain. The brain calls for sugar all the time. It uses about 50% of the sugar that's produced in the body, just that single organ. So when you have the liver that is overproducing and not paying attention to the insulin that is being made, you have the first area of insulin resistance right there. Okay. The muscles are supposed to use that insulin to help absorb glucose for function. In insulin resistance, you have impaired glucose uptake following carbohydrate ingestion or a meal that's higher in carbohydrates. So instead of the glucose being taken into the muscles for use, you have an inability of those muscles to use that glucose, so you have hyperglycemia as the result. Two states cause this, obesity and physical inactivity. Okay. This results in the muscular insulin resistance. So now we've got two pieces of the eight core defects. Where is insulin secreted? Pancreas. Yes. What secretes it? Beta cells, correct? Yes. So the beta cells augment insulin secretion to offset the defect in insulin action, meaning 
they see that the insulin is not working correctly. So it's going to continue to secrete more insulin. If insulin resistance is augmented sufficiently, then we have normal glucose tolerance. Okay. We get euglycemia. We, we don't have a hyperglycemic state. The problem is we are developing an insulin resistance because we have consistent secretion trying to correct insulin resistance in the liver and in the muscles. This failure ends up leading to elevation in postprandial glucose levels. So post-meal sugars stay high. When these sugars stay high and the liver is no longer sensitive to the insulin the body is producing on a normal basis, you have an increase in the fasting glucose levels. Okay. Okay. So we're still on the beta cells here. So where do we have failure start? First area of pathogenesis for failure is age. We see a natural decline in beta cell function with age. We can see this with the increased incidence of diabetes with advancing age. So does that mean that the beta cells wear out? I'm sorry. I just <laughs> you're gonna take that shot. I was. Yeah, I had to. I, you're gonna say you could say wear out. I think you're probably a little bit more fair to say they age out. I was waiting for him to say you could say they wear out, but you'd be wrong. <laughs> no, I'm not. Gonna... <laughs> well, you do that, but then you, then, then you discourage your learners, right, Tom? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm still planning my uh, award-winning speech someday. So there you go. <laughs> uh, the joke that never dies. So <laughs> no matter how starts, your speech starts with I Niller wafer. <laughs> <laughs> mine's gonna start. Mine's gonna start with I told you so. I have nobody to thank but myself. <laughs> <laughs> you should all bow in front of me in my and my somebody me so there deep. you go <laughs> <laughs> yes. and, and now that i've taught you all about sudoku you should actually teach you how to use it or play okay. it so there you go sorry, sorry so we know that and we also know that there's a genetic component to type 2 diabetes that's why right. when we talk about patient history oh my mom has it my dad has it my brother has it so first degree relatives of type 2 diabetic parents and twin studies have shown and provided strong evidence of the genetic tie. We've seen localized impaired insulin secretion and reduced GLP-1 responsiveness, glucagon-like peptide 1 responsiveness to at least one specific gene in the body. So not only do we have a familial, we've got specific genes that are ineffective. So the third area of failure is the active insulin resistance. We've got the hypersecretion of insulin that continues to increase the demand on the on the beta cells. As this insulin resistance continues to develop, we get the deposition of fat, like we spoke about in the other episode, into the beta cells that leads to impaired secretion and then subsequent failure. If you can't put out the insulin, don't go there, Tom. <laughs> if you can't get the insulin out, you can't lower the sugar. The other substance we see a hypersecretion of, and we don't hear much about it, is islet amyloid polypeptide, IAPP. It is actually secreted in a one-to-one -one ratio with insulin, and as this is secreted, we see further development of insulin resistance. Okay. Okay? Okay. Still with me, Tom? Tom, you're muted. Oh. He's he's Sorry. working on a speech still. Yeah, he was. He was the <laughs> He had the colors out and everything. He was. <laughs> yeah. 
or some of us were taking a drink because their throat is really dry. But you're, you're correct. Not hook. I'm just a no. Now I'm thinking Jeff needs to get invited. He's going to be wearing the other light or sky blue tuxedo. No, I like the ruffles, lime green. So. I like the lime green. I'll stick with it. <laughs> okay. okay. This leads to lipotoxicity, and we're going to talk about this a second time here down the line. But the impaired insulin secretion due to the elevated plasma-free fatty acid levels leads to the to this toxicity. So in genetically predisposed individuals, the elevated free fatty acids for as little as 48 hours impairs the secretion of insulin. So just the fact that we've got plasma-free fatty acid levels that are increased because we have impaired fat metabolism impairs how insulin is secreted. And that goes back to the deposition of fat cells into the beta cells. Okay. So now we end up, and we're still talking about how beta cell dysfunction occurs. Now we end up with glucotoxicity. So we have first and second phase insulin secretion. Since this has been impaired by the lipotoxicity and the obstruction of the secretion of insulin, we get glucose toxic. We have continued elevation in blood sugars. So we have this positive feedback loop, which keeps making things worse. And if you stop and think about all the pathophysiology or pathophysiologic problems that ha occur in the body and what happens in the process, almost all of them are the result of a positive feedback loop. Think about heart failure. Right. And the inappropriate transition of fluids across the membrane. So instead of fluids being broken down and transported out of the body, they're stored up. And so the body in response continues to increase circulation, which in turn increases or the diffusion across the membrane. So you have more retention of fluid. It's another positive feedback loop. That's the same thing that happens in this process. Okay. So we go back to the IAPP and the amyloid deposition in the pancreas, which is toxic to the beta cells, and then increases the fasting plasma glucose concentration. So we know about our drugs that are in cretin mimetics, the GLP-1s, correct? And you can, to a lesser extent, you can talk about uh, DPP-4 uh, inhibitors as in cretin-related. These work with GLP-1 and gastric inhibitory polypeptide, GIP. The GIP and GLP-1 account for 90% of the incretin effect in the body. GLP-1 especially is responsible for stimulation of glucose-dependent insulin secretion due to glucose absorption through the small intestine. GLP-1 deficiency is early. GIP resistance by beta cells results in an increased amount in the GIP in circulation, which in turn leads to the reduction of the uh, insulin secretion. I'm sorry, the increase in insulin secretion and the reduction in glucose breakdown. Okay. Okay. So the seven step process, you can summarize it really quickly. Even though we've got insulin resistance in liver and muscle early in the natural history of disease, you have to have beta cell function failure for type 2 diabetes to, to occur. Okay. You have to have those three pieces to, to occur. So DeFranzo goes on to talk about the change in adipocyte met metabolism. So now we're going to go back to the lipotoxicity and the change in lipolysis. So you've got four problems here. 
Fat cells become resistant to the anti-lipolytic effect of insulin. This results in the elevation to plasma-free fatty acid concentrations. This leads to lipotoxicity, which is the chronic elevation of free fatty acid. This ends up stimulating gluconeogenesis, which ends up which induces hepatic and muscle and muscle insulin resistance and impairs insulin secretion. That you have your deposition of the adipocytes and the free fatty acid in the beta cells. The dysfunctional adipocytes produce insulin-resistant inducing inflammatory and atherosclerotic provoking adipocyte tykines. Try saying that three times fast. No, you're, yeah, oh, I'm going to you. <laughs> but they also fail to secrete the normal amounts of the insulin sensitizing adipocyte tykines. And I know I screwed. It's like Tom trying to pronounce words now. Yeah, words are hard. <laughs> yeah. They just put them in that funny order, don't they? <laughs> yeah. All the wrong emphasis, all the wrong, <laughs> the wrong syllables. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I'll really do it. Okay. Yeah. So these fat cells keep getting bigger and bigger. They remain insulin resistant and they actually end up with an, an, a diminished ability to store fat within the cell walls. So this overflow goes to the liver, goes to the muscle, and goes to the beta cells. So you've got more deposition of fat viscerally. So stop and think about one of the characteristics of people with type 2 diabetes, a lot of visceral fat deposition. Yeah. That's where it comes from. It's from the lipotoxicity okay. and the inappropriate metabolism of the fat. This fat can also lead into the arteriovascular smooth cells and lead to atherosclerotic disease. This is where you get your coronary artery disease and your microvascular disease. So let's move to part five, our G GI tract and the incretin effect. That incretin effect doesn't just happen and impact the beta cell function. We get insufficient GLP-1 secretion in the distal small intestine. So you're un we're unable to inhibit glucagon secretion by the alpha cells. Okay. Glucagon secreted by the alpha cells is what tells the liver to make more glucose. And so what GLP-1 does is it says, uh -uh, you don't need that glucagon. We don't need any more sugar. Part two, the insufficient GLP secretion impairs suppression of the hepatic glucose production that should occur after a meal. So you eat a meal, insulin should, should increase because of an increase in the GLP-1 secretion. People who have type 2 diabetes have got a reduction in that GLP-1 secretion, they still have that normal, um, or abnormal, I guess, hepatic glucose production, regardless of what their meal is. How many patients do you have come in and say, I didn't eat anything, but my blood sugar still went up? Yep. yep. That's why. Frequently. Yeah. They, they don't have GLP-1 working. They, their alpha cells are still secreting glucagon. Their liver is just doing what it's told. So GIP secretion in the proximal small intestine is increased. So the beta cells, which are supposed to respond to the GIP secretion by increasing insulin secretion, are resistant. Okay. So there's no more, there's no extra insulin being secreted. The insulin that's already being secreted, the body is resistant to. And now we come back over to the alpha cell again. Its job, synthesize and secrete glucagon. This stimulates the hepatic glucose production by promoting the breakdown of glycogen. So this is where... Fasting hyperglycemia comes from. The alpha cell is responsible for it. And this is where one class of drugs works is trying to suppress the alpha cell function. So you lose that uh, fasting hyperglycemia. It's not a class of drugs that we use, or at least not a class I use very often, the TZDs. Okay. So 
now we come back to the kidneys, our our favorite organ, right? <laughs> so what is so what does the kidney do? It's a filter. Yes. Oh, I know. that's I know. what it is. It's, it's amazing. Even in even in Ohio, it does that. No, <laughs> <laughs> no. So yes, it's filtering mostly Yingling and Coors Light. So there you go. So, do you know how much glucose a day it'll filter? About 170 grams. Wow. 90% of that glucose is reabsorbed via the SGLT2 transporter in the convoluted segment of the proximal tubule. Uh The remaining 10% of that glucose is reabsorbed by the SGLT1 transporter in the straight segment of the descending proximal tubule. So the result, zero glucose in the urine. Normally. So one of those abbreviations should sound a little bit familiar because we use it as a drug class. Yeah. No, there's been several that you've been going through that I'm yep. Yep, like GLP-1s and there you go. LG and it, yeah. So instead of offloading glucose into the urine to try and correct the hyperglycemia, the kidney is still filtering the glucose and still retaining the glucose and still depositing that glucose back into the bloodstream. And the result is an actual maladaptation that increases the absorptive ability of the kidney on absorbing glucose. So not only is the kidney doing its job, it is overdoing its job. Okay. So that's still a positive feedback loop. So now we come to the brain, which is the biggest problem in many, many people. <laughs> My co-host included. <laughs> yeah, I was like, wow. One of you was going to one of you was going to have to get to that punch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> You nominate yourself for one Nobel Peace Prize, <laughs> and look, everybody just comes out of the woodwork. I'm yeah, just you'll be okay you. there, Radar. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> oh boy, hot lips. All right, here we go. You're walking. In, you're walking into my world now, big guy. All right, yeah, yeah. I get lost in the uh, type two diabetes update about insults and third grade behavior. That's my arena. I, I, I'm Maximus here. So, As so saying, no. brain. Brain. <laughs> yeah, so words hard. There we go. So the problem in the brain is at the hypothalamus. The response to glucose ingestion should be an inhibition of our appetite and a reduction of that magnitude of desire. Okay. That comes as a direct response of the hyperinsulinemia that we have when we have food ingestion or carbohydrate ingestion. Insulin goes up, that desire to continue to eat and absorb more carbohydrate and more glucose should drop. Okay. That is effective in people with type two diabetes. It is also a problem in people with obesity. And that's where you look at obesity as not a personality flaw, but actually a metabolic disease because you have metabolic changes that have created this problem. So that's where DeFranzo goes. He, he calls it his ominous octet. Okay. Now, Schwartz, Epstein, Corky, Grant, I think it was Gavin, and Aguilar in 2016 decided that we needed to change how we focus on classifying diabetes. They decided that we needed to look look at a beta cell-centric classification scheme. 
Now, what's interesting when you look at it, and I guess if interesting from a nerdy standpoint like mine, <laughs> is it's essentially everything that DeFranzo talks about, just a little bit recharacterized. They split, they called theirs the egregious 11 beta cell centric model. They actually separated out the reduced incretin effect as a specific defect as opposed to parts of another defect. Okay. Um, they look at the immune and inflammatory response as a, as a specific problem. And then they also specify the increased glucose reabsorption in the stomach and small intestine as another problem. Whereas that's blended in with DeFranzo when he talks about the GLP-1 and the GIP issues in the GI tract. So they mesh very closely. And there's been, I don't want to say that there's been controversy, but you get different schools of thought as to as to which direction to explain things. Okay, makes sense. I learned it and think it's easier to explain to patients using the eight core defects just because folks understand this is an organ, 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 this is, an organ, this is part, these are two parts of the same organ. Yeah. As opposed to looking at inflammatory systems and this is what an incretin does and, and whatnot. So that's the direction I take when I'm teaching patients. Okay. So luckily every year we've got two different diabetes organizations will update the care pathways. Oftentimes they agree, sometimes they don't. So this year, the ADA's update is the first time that the American College of Cardiology has endorsed the update. And it's because that they are looking at reducing cardiovascular risk which, in disease management, which we have to do. Which, and you see, I assume, where you're at, which we not divulge specific locations, obviously, but I mean... Yeah. You have drug drafts to come in, and that is the huge push. I mean, there's like 9,000 diabetes medicines out there currently on the market. I think every pharmaceutical company has a GLB-2, an SLG. So, but that's the big one is, well, ours is the only one that can be cardiovascular protective. Ours is the only one that can do this with cardiovascular. Well, and I'm, and I'm going to stop you there. There's the only one that can say that according to the FDA. Right. But if you stop and look at their mechanism of action, each one of these has got to have some cardiovascular effect. The GLP-1 class has got to have a cardiovascular protective effect. Now, some of these drugs that are being studied because the FDA won't let them repeat the same study that another company has already performed can say that it doesn't increase cardiovascular risk <laughs> right because somebody has already said that said that they reduce cardiovascular risk and so it's a lot of semantics when you get when you get down to it oh, absolutely. and so that's where you've got to really look at that mechanism of action that's what i focus on when i'm talking with students stop just stop looking at i tell them to not just look at the name of the drug but look at what the drugs are doing as a class and why they work and then decide why you're picking each each medication across the class for example there are two beta blockers out right now that have been studied to and shown and proven that they reduce cardiovascular risk. Yet we keep prescribing all these other beta blockers that are supposed to reduce the risk of cardiovascular events. Two have been studied and proven. Huh. I <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to mean to uh, 
Now, drive you crazy. I was going to say, in the study by Alvin, Simon, and Theodore, <laughs> uh, <Yeah>. which... <laughs> and, and here's the kicker. I'm in a rural health clinic, one of the federally qualified rural health clinics. So we have to deal with all the rules. We get zero drug reps. Really? See, we're an RHC, and we get uh, five or six a day. Nope. They can come in. They I can talk none. to us, but we don't take samples. Um, they can leave discount cards. We don't mess with samples because of the requirements for uh, record keeping. Now, are it's, you, it's too much of a pain. Are you RHC or FQHC? If you FQHC. Okay. And then maybe that's the the difference because we're an RHC, we're not an FQHC. Well, I say that. I believe we're FQHC. I would say we have only had like one or two reps come in, but no samples or anything like that were left behind and we don't keep any at our office either. Well, and record keeping for it on dispensing samples is such a nightmare. Oh, it's a pain in the ass. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, it's, it's, I was at a clinic that did it and I was one of two providers at the clinic and I managed the clinic and practiced and I would not do it again or I would find a way to delegate. I mean, yeah, it, it's nice <laughs> to have samples because depending on the patient's insurance or whatever the case may be, I mean, it's a nice way to see if this make it, which obviously is the idea of a sample, but I mean, it's, it saves the patient money. It saves the patient potential time and you can kind of I agree. toy around with what is going to work for them without costing them a shit ton of money. Or if they hit the donut hole, yeah. you can allegedly carry them across it. Uh, if you've got, uh, yeah. if they're on one of these uh, $800 a month medications. Though I do have to, and I have said this before, and I don't know if I said it on the show or not, but I, I do think that pharmaceutical companies get a bad rap sometimes, and, and sometimes rightfully so, as we've talked about it, like on the opioid episode. But mm-hmm. I do know that they are working a whole lot more with patients now. You know, there's tons of patient assistance programs out there to try to get patients who are low income or subsidy to use these medications that they need. So, I mean, I do think in some aspects are stepping up, but then you have the flip side where some companies are charging a shit ton of money for insulin. And not, we are a political yeah. free zone, <laughs> but this is a neutral, this is a neutral item that was mentioned tonight in the state of the union was about drug cost. Now I don't know the exact statement but i know it got a lot of applause and i think that's probably something that's going to be coming into legislation sometime soon so 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 how we get some of that medication or it's funded for big pharma might actually start changing so that would be an interesting and honestly welcome change if we could change how they jack prices up or you know if you go to canada it's one price even though it comes from the same factory here like that would be an interesting change on how some of these drugs are handled. That's something that the ADA is working on too, is reducing the cost of insulin. And they're working with the manufacturers on doing that. I believe it was 2018 was the first year that CMS permitted assistance to folks who used a CMS-based insurance as their insurance carrier. But certain criteria had to be met. Right. For that assistance to be provided. One of the things that I look at with my patients, and it's a lower income rural community, making sure that they have at least applied for a low income subsidy, the LIS through Social Security to help with prescription costs. Right. And most insurance companies will require that prior to 
providing patient assistance to folks who have had who are on a public-based insurance. Right. And rightfully so. I mean, it, you need to goes back to a lot of the shows we've talked about, like jumping through hoops. And sometimes it's a pain in the ass yeah. for the provider, it's a pain in the ass for the patient. But ultimately, the- as you said in pre-production or pre-recording, you know, it's it goes back to it's all about the patient and yeah. making sure that they're taken care of. I'll joke with patients uh, that it's the best money or it's the best medicine that insurance companies will allow us to practice. <laughs> oh, but there's so much truth to that. I mean, yeah, yes, exactly. But that is one of the backhanded, like, yeah, but that's actually yeah. true <laughs> to an extent. Yeah, just well, I think that patients understand that we get frustrated as much as they do by the hoops that have to be jumped through and the costs. And I tell patients if I'm if I'm going to put them on loraglutide or semaglutide or another one of the uh, name brand DPP4 medications, it's going to be expensive. Yeah. If it's too expensive, you have to let me know. And there's no shame in that. These drugs are expensive. This is why I want to try and use it. This is why I think it's going to be beneficial. But if it doesn't work, then we'll step back and try this. But hell, Jeff, I think I do that with any medication anymore i tell, yeah. I mean because shit will change overnight and you don't even realize yeah. it and like i mean how many years ago was it that doxycycline just all of a sudden went to 200 dollars a pill and it was like what the hell happened like this is the exact same medication they've used for 30 years and all of a sudden it's crazy so i tell all my patients hey you know what if you go to the pharmacy and this is an insane price call me or have the yeah. call me and we will figure something out yeah, the one that get the ones that still get me are are the inhaled medications for managing COPD and asthma. <laughs> there is there is never a break on those, and they have been out since the dawn of time. And you prescribe the branded ipratropium albuterol combination medication, and patient is going there, and it's a seventy five dollar inhaler, and the darn thing has been been out for thirty years. Yeah. At, there, there's no need for it, and I don't understand how the patent hasn't run out. But that, uh, that's a that's a whole other, well, that's a whole other think... research article that that Tom should be writing. Oh, buddy, I'm writing ideas down. <laughs> well, I think some of that was because initially the, and this is just me speculating. The inhalers used to be like CFC mm-hmm. as far as the propellant, and then oh, you know the the hole in the ozone that was causing problems, so. Well, no, I'm not saying they, that was no, a problem. <laughs> but I mean, that little thing. But then they had to go back and reformulate. Well, now yeah. that they've had to reformulate in some in colchicine, I mean, you know, they they will go in and change a couple of molecules, and now they can rebrand it for another however the hell long a patent yeah. is. And so I think you know, like my pro air that I use is fifty three dollars. My insurance because it's a name brand medication because it's been reformulated over and over. My insurance sucks for phar- for pharmaceuticals sometimes, so I pay fifty dollars for a fifty three dollar inhaler. <laughs> I'm like, are you, you shitting me? Like, well, and that's what I, I my favorite website to use at least in clinic needymeds.org. It's got every discount and assistance program out there. Or if it's a name branded drug, go to the name of the drug dot com, and every one of them has got some sort of discount card that's Co-pay available. Card, yeah. It's a matter of whether they qualify for whether they qualify for it. Well, and listening to Jeff talk, again, as a new nurse practitioner, that's one of those minefields that we're constantly trying to learn how to navigate is, 
hey, this is what I think we need to do. And then a brick wall goes up and you're like, oh, crap. Okay, so what is my next avenue? What is my next avenue? Constantly having to know what the next two or three options are, which you may know in your head. But then when it's – it may not be – patient based it may be insurance based mm-hmm. or they need a pa or it's a cost base and you're like crap how am i going to still get to where i need to go three medicines from now like it's it's still one of those fascinating things i'm still trying to figure out so when listening to you talk about it i'm like oh yeah well then <laughs> i've heard that or i've seen that then or- you'll appreciate this little trick that i've used more than once on getting a pa that's required me to go to a non peer to peer review and they are not my peer when I call them. Yeah. Right. They have our full names, right? When we call. Yeah. Uh, it's Mr. Dr. So-and-so and it's Tommy G. Yes. Or whoever. And I start off by asking their full name and okay. they're a little reluctant and we work through it. And eventually we get to the spot where I'm saying, Biggest one for me is on diabetes medication. So they are failing on metformin. And so the next drug in the class is, or the next uh, drug on the list is to use GLP-1. Well, our uh, Medicaid managed care does not want to use that. They want to use something different. And so I tell them, so you're telling me that the two uh, clinical practice guidelines that are out that recommend the use of a GLP-1 as a step two are incorrect and my patient cannot have this. So if my patient suffers harm from this lack of medication, my expectation is that you will be sitting with me at the defense table. I need oh. your last name. Oh. You know, the- and I stop and I wait and they get awfully silent. And it is amazing the number of times I either get passed up the line when I've been stonewalled <laughs> or I suddenly have an approval. You know, in my head, I had like a little like scrubs moment, like a movie in my head. And I was just sitting in the background, just shaking my head, arms crossed, like, "Mm, you don't know who you're talking to, Tommy G. (laughs) Jeff is about to fuck you up here in a second. I had a completely separate movie, and I was picturing more like a few good men and like Jeff. (laughs) You can't handle the truth. Yeah, and he's like, what's your NPI? What's your NPI? Like, what's your last name? (laughs) And finally gets into (laughs) Yeah. Oh, and and I and I've had people and I've had them sit there. Well, I don't think I need to give you. I said, well, here's what you're telling me. I'm telling you that this is what is wrong with my patient. This is the data that I have to back it up. This is the peer review data that says this is what they need. I have it from multiple sources. I am showing this to you, and you're still saying because you're. Your little checkboxes say, no, you can't have this until you failed this, this, and this, that you're going to penalize my patient because of your ignorance of what the clinical practice guidelines are. So now you are delaying care and treatment to my patient for three months. Realistically, is something going to happen to my patient that is life-altering in three months? Probably not. Can it? You're looking at three months potential difference of elevated blood sugars, which if you're looking, if you're thinking about diabetic neuropathy or diabetic retinopathy, so you've got nerves that are exposed to elevated blood sugars and you're going to have breakdown of myelin sheath and irreversible damage that can occur in three months. I see an interesting episode with a uh, 
the NP dude because I was just thinking in my head from, you know, the legal side, having been on that side, I like part of this is for them to fall into a civil liability issue is they have to know that what they're doing is going to cause harm. And basically you are making (laughs) the client aware like, Hey, so, you know, you can no longer say that you didn't know this was a problem. I literally just told you. So if further harm does come resulting from this action, it's on. There is a reason I use, I do that. Yeah. (laughs) And I, (laughs) and I use evidence. That's what we do. We use evidence. And there have been times where I've been, been able to do it and been very pleasant about it. There have been times where I've been a jackass about it. Both have worked. I prefer to be pleasant about it, but I'm not, I'm not afraid to push the jackass button. I bet that your Medicaid in your state probably has your NPI number flagged for, you know what, just <laughs> let it go. It's fine. Just say yes. Yeah, it's it's fine. <laughs> if I get to a pharmacist, if they have punted me up the line and, I, and I'm and i past whatever pencil pusher is before then. Right. And, and, and don't get me wrong. They're doing their job. Right. They're doing what they're told. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's not personal. But if you're going to, if you're going to do your job, you have to be able to think. And these people are not empowered to think. Nope. And they need to be. So that's a whole other issue. But if I can get to a pharmacist, 99 times out of 100, I can get it approved. If I can get to a physician or another nurse practitioner, I can get it approved. Because yeah, I've got level three zone, you're good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's that it's jumping through every hoop. And I could, you can cut that hoop in half by get putting them on the hook uh, with some liability. I like that. Well, and I think you brought up a really good point. That is something people need to remember when they are making these phone calls. You're right. The person that you're first talking to is probably a not empowered to think or do anything outside the box. And it's not always their fault. And I, Ben actually was with me one time when I prefaced my conversation, look, Sir, I know this isn't your fault, but you're the one standing here, so you're going to have to listen to me for a minute. I've said it too. But you don't start off – yeah, I mean – but it's good. I I think sometimes the first person you talk to sometimes becomes the face of the Mm -hmm. enemy, and it's really not their fault. And so, okay, let's talk about this. Now, like you said, I am not afraid to be an asshole to anybody, but generally I don't try and do that first. And – I just think that's always a a really good thing for us all to remember is, yes, we're already pissed off. We're already having to make these phone calls. We're already busy enough. We have enough stuff to do, but it's not exactly this person's fault. And I'm not sure how talented you are. I know that I cannot be in a room taking care of a patient if I'm spending 10 minutes, 15 minutes on the phone with an insurance company doing stupid stuff like that. Uh, 100%. Yeah. That kind of stuff just frustrates me. And if I've got somebody who is just absolutely resistant to putting me through to somebody else who can make a decision, and I'll tell them, I understand you're doing your job. I'm doing mine. And we can grease the wheels and just move me on to somebody who can make the decision. It's not a ding against you. Just put me through to somebody who's who can. And when they start stonewalling and keeping and being a barrier, that's when that button gets pushed. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's when and you pull that really trigger. it's really hard to unpush say, that okay. button. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, the Hoosier supervisor game is always an interesting one at, at my household. Like, oh, oh, this is where we're going? Okay, well, let's go ahead and talk to somebody else. Eventually, I'm going to hit somebody that's going to be like, I'm done. 
like just give up this guy this guy's not going anywhere but it's it's good to remember especially like you said it's also important though to have those facts and everything ready because it's real easy for them to go well you don't need that well then you better have the information available and i think that i think this is common sense now but in the heat of the moment you go shit like what, what what was i getting at sometimes or some people do and it's just it's always good to remember go into have, it knowing i it. have it bookmarked so. and i offer to email it or fax it to them immediately <laughs> awesome <laughs> yeah. i i don't i don't beat around the bush it's I'm going to need you to send me that link because I, the other thing I have, the only thing I have bookmarked right now is actually your article. So I, Hey, I know this guy. I'll have him call you. You don't want me to stick him on you. Exactly. So getting back on the topic, because we kind of got off talking about Prios and everything. So Jeff, do you want to go over some medication like update treatment wise for diabetes? Well, um, the revisions that have come out are kind of interesting. It used to be, if this, then this. If this, then this. We right. used to treat to failure. And everybody was the same, right? Oh, of course, yeah. Over the years, the last five years, we have seen a huge change in treatment paradigm towards individualization of care. And so to to look at the revisions on from the ADA in particular, so... The criteria for diagnosing type 2 diabetes used to be two separate abnormal test results from different specimens, correct? So you you would have an A1C of 6.6, and then you'd have to bring them back in and have another abnormal A1C or a random glucose greater than 180 or a fasting glucose greater than 125. Yeah, yeah. It is now two abnormal test results from the same sample. Okay. It made things infinitely more simple. And probably so, it's less time that you're not treating the eventual problem that they were probably going to be diagnosed within two or three months when you re-pulled a different sample. Correct. So have you ever treated pre-diabetes? Yes. Okay. Tom? Well, you're, do, you're doing, you're no, doing uh, more urgent care though, right? Yes, exactly. I was going to say it's a little different for me, but I'm still tracking Treating prediabetes had been controversial, and there actually had not been good data to support treating prediabetes. And in fact, for two years, they were saying prediabetes doesn't exist. It's either diabetes or no diabetes. Not like pre-pregnant, right? I mean, you... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's supposed to be yes or no, <laughs> not sort of. <laughs> well, kind of. I... Now that the uh, recommendation is to start implementing lifestyle management and medication if you have an indication that they are pre-diabetic and have risk factors. And if you look at the AACE guidelines, they go so far as to say if there are moved from low risk to high risk or very high risk, you're not just looking at adding the biguanide, metformin. You could potentially be adding a GLP-1. You could be adding liraglutide early prior to diagnosis, but you're going to be looking at adding it at three milligram, uh, three milligram dose for weight management, but you're still going to have management of prediabetes just because you're using the GLP-1 receptor agonist. So is the, and if you can't answer, that's fine. And I'm sorry for asking. Um, so do you think that, <laughs> do you think that's to preserve as much function as there is? Yes. 
And absolutely, because the risk for progression to type 2 diabetes is so great and the impact of disease and the risk for atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease developing is so great that if we don't, we've seen now that if we don't intervene early and do what we can to prevent it, then most of these people, once they hit a certain age, now we're talking about age-related failure of the beta cell function, they're going to progress to a type 2 diabetes anyway. Okay. So what you're trying to do is you're trying to preserve function as long as you can by reducing insulin resistance and improving their blood sugars overall. Makes sense. So they also talk about treating based on risk factors and comprehensive medical evaluation with the diagnosis of diabetes. And they specifically talk about using measuring an a, a 10-year ASCVD risk as a part of overall risk assessment when managing disease. Now, that one is a little bit, and we'll move off of evidence here for a moment. At least we're not on a label or anything like that. I have a little bit of a problem with the 10-year ASCVD risk because it does not look at genetic risk. Okay. It's a formula based on age, gender, race, smoking, blood pressure, yeah. smoking, and lipids. Okay. And whether they take an aspirin or not. If I've got a patient who has a parent who died before the age of 50 of cardiovascular disease, there's, their risk yeah. is very different. I, I don't care what the 10-year risk is. Their risk is different, and I'm going to treat them differently. And so I, as you would expect. I think that's a little bit narrow, more narrow than it needs to be. I think what they – I would have liked to have seen them offer other options or at least discuss genetic risk and perhaps the need to look at a different measure. So that – that's just me on my little soapbox on there. But it makes sense because there are, unfortunately, some providers out there that are going to, this is the guideline, I will not deviate from this particular guideline. Mm -hmm. And you're not taking into that into consideration, like you said, okay, well, their dad died at 40 from a heart attack. Oh, but their their, their tenure risk score is still super low. Well, yeah. Are you going to start a 70-year-old person on a statin? Well. I, let's be realistic. <laughs> I mean, I know what it says, but yeah. realistically, what is what are you gaining? What risk reduction are you getting there? So I less paperwork from the insurance company that says, "Hey, you have this patient who not on a stat yeah. needs to be," or from the pharmacy calling you saying, "Hey, why isn't this patient on this, that, or the other?" But the data doesn't support a reduction in overall morbidity and mortality by adding a statin. Are you going to start them on an aspirin at age 70, 75? Yeah. How long does it take to see how how long how long does it take to see the benefit of aspirin therapy? 5 to 10 years. Right. And so what's your life expectancy at that point? Are you going to actually see that benefit? So you got to be able to think through some of these things. And so when you get into some of those black and white you get that's where I, I struggle a little bit with some of these things. No, I, I, yeah, I agree with you. So lifestyle management, of course. What about having people check their sugars? Um, Do you, what's your what's your stance on that? And I'm not setting you up. No, I'm just I curious. No, uh, generally, if we're treating with oral medications, I don't have to necessarily do that. Okay. There's no data that shows a change in outcome on people on one oral agent 
and self-monitoring of blood glucose. There's no change in outcomes. Well, there you go. Then. So no, you don't have to do it. Now, if I have somebody who is a new diagnosed, newly diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, they're getting a monitor. They're learning how to use it because if they feel bad, I want them to know how to use it. I also am going to have them use it for the first three months because I want them to understand what their meals do to their sugars. I want them to see what that relationship is. And that is so Once we get towards goal, then step back to three times a week, once a week, once a month, right? or just keep your strips current. But we get to that as we get towards gold, depending on what they're on, what medications they're on. But so you're using it like a proactive correct. education. So that way they know if they eat that plate of spaghetti in the morning, their blood sugar is going to be 180, 200. That's why. But that is huge because I can remember one case in particular when I was an ER nurse, a patient come in and blood sugar was like 500. And I was like, okay, you know, are you diabetic? Well, the doctor told me I was diabetic, and he wrote me some, a prescription for insulin. I said, okay, did you – no, that was it. Like, well, did you realize that you can't <laughs> sugar and carbs? And No, they just gave me this insulin and said, here you go. So mm -hmm. that education – and I try to do that with my newly diagnosed diabetes. I probably don't do it as well as I should. I like mm -hmm. your approach to it, and I may steal that from you. Um, <laughs> but it's true because when – they, everybody knows, okay, well, I'm diagnosed with diabetes. I need to quit eating sugar. They don't think about potatoes, pasta, rice, carbs, all that shit that is going to turn into sugar in their body. And then you tell them that they're just like floored. They had no mm -hmm. idea. The lack of education in general. And I don't know. I mean, I can't say that it's the same problem in Germany, but in America, that is a wide issue like from where i'm at now to where i lived when we were down there ben it's it's no different like people are so misinformed or uneducated on what they're actually doing it i i think perhaps that would be that's that's one of the most important things i'm learning now is this educational portion that jeff's been hitting on this whole time is to make sure we're telling our patients that and honestly i'm going to be stealing a lot of this information from jeff as I move further into primary care and just saying, Hey, did you know you're supposed to do this? Because I heard that's a good idea. And I just, no, I but no, yeah. like seriously though, it's, it's very, it's, it's very much a similar issue though. Like they know they're not supposed to eat rock candy, but the entire bag of uh, sweet barbecue chips, like evaded their, their radar. Well, You stop and think what you're doing, what you're doing to this person when you have told them that they have type two diabetes. First, you tell them that you have, that you're telling them that they have a chronic disease. Right. Now you you put that diagnosis on their chart and you have limited their ability to get life insurance down the road. You have put a label on them that will stick with them the rest of their life. Yeah. Financially. Yeah. Okay. Now what are you supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? Air quote that when we start somebody, when we diagnose type 2 diabetes. Now they get an ACE inhibitor or an ARB for renal protection. Now they need to be taking an 81 milligram aspirin for atherosclerotic protection. They need to be seeing an eye doctor annually. They need to have a foot exam annually. They need to have certain labs multiple times a year. So, so now you're increasing their financial burden and their time burden. Oh, by the way, you should be on a statin as well. So now we've got another pill. You need to be on metformin. So you've got a pill there. Here's your meter. 
here's what happens, here are the foods you can eat. So you have just hit them. You have changed their entire world. Absolutely. Yeah. No, when you're listening to you say that, it's like, yeah, you think about it, but I guess you don't think about it to that detail, but that's very, very it's, true. So you're overwhelming them. And first of all, you draw in the lab, they come back with a sugar 150, you reflexed an A1C, it comes back 8.2. Okay, great. Now you're calling them back in. So now you're to two visits. Right. And whatever time off they've had to take off work. Yeah. That second visit's a longer visit, so you're looking at 30 minutes. And since it's not a physical, you're looking at a 99214. You're billing. Perhaps a 99215 when you're billing it. Yeah. Depending on what how their insurance is, they may have a co-insurance or a co-pay, or they may be responsible for the whole thing if they have an HSA. Yeah. May have to pay the whole thing out of pocket before their insurance will pick anything up. So you've added their financial burden. You've given them a pill burden. So my approach is I bring them back in. We talk to them. I have the A&P has got a type 2 diabetes packet that's excellent. I down, I've downloaded it. I talk all the way through that packet. I don't open it. I just talk to the patient. I give them that packet and tell them everything we just talked about is right here. You are going to have questions that you don't even know you have. Right. I don't expect you to remember much of anything from today. You're going to come back in two weeks and you're going to bring your meter with you. And we're going to sit and talk and we're going to answer any questions that you have at that point. You're going to see me four weeks after that. We'll see where your sugars are, how you're feeling, what's going on. And two months after that, we're going to repeat your lab work. You're going to come in we're going to talk and we'll see what we do from there. Yeah. So we've got four visits built in in the first three months. I like that. If they are at goal at three months. Which is feasible. Yeah, no. I, if, they're, if they're at goal at three months, I won't see them again for six months. Okay. So what essential oil are you using? <laughs> to, is that oregano oil or something? Like what are you, I think it's what are you doing oil there? CBD. But Jeff, that ties into something that you said on – Christine's podcast, which I'm going to plug her real quick here, Antidote Stories in Medicine, mm-hmm. where you talk about, you know, we go to the patient and we, but so many patients are have at times having to choose between paying a bill and putting food on the table. And so, mm-hmm. and in this culture of America, where we currently are, carbs and everything else are cheaper than hell. And the food that they need to be eating is expensive. What I tell them I tell them, I'm not going to tell you, you can't have something. Right. Because first of all, the, what you're going to do is give me the finger, go out and have it and say, ha ha, screw you. Yeah. I showed you. Second of all, reality is this is what's around and this is what's affordable. So we need to work within what is available and what you get, what you can afford. Biggest key is for you to watch the intake and reduce the quantity of the food. By reducing the quantity, you're going to reduce the carbohydrate. Yeah. Very true. And so with, if you're looking at, at using metformin, you're going to see a little bit of reduction in, ap- in appetite. I talked to them about the delightful side effect of metformin with the green apple trots. And I explained to them, yep. if you eat more carbohydrates, you are going to have more of that side effect. The first time you make that mistake, you're going to remember this conversation. <laughs> you generally won't make that mistake again. <laughs> <laughs> and you're going to reduce it and you're going to feel better. And the best part about it is you reduce you. I promise you, you start reducing the quantity of food. You're going to lose some weight and you're going to feel better. Yeah. 
and then they say, okay, well, how much weight do I need to lose? So we go into the conversation about how much weight do you have to lose to improve health? Three to 5% of body mass. Okay. In a 200 pound person, you're looking at five pounds. How, how fast do I want them to lose the weight? Half a pound to a pound and a half a week. I don't need them to dump it off. Right. They're going to lose it faster. And when they lose it faster, they're going to feel better about it. But I want it to be a lifestyle change. I don't want it to be a diet. Crash diet and then, yeah. Because it's not sustainable. I tell them, here's the reality. Your metabolism has changed. The way your body uses and creates hormones and responds to the hormones it creates has changed. It will not go back. You are fighting a losing battle. Does that mean that you should just give up and not do anything? Absolutely not. But it means that you need to be realistic, and I need to be realistic about what you're capable of. And so we're going to start off on the same page. It's not as easy as a math problem. You've got too many factors working against you. Start small. Keep looking small. We want to improve your health. Yeah. And it's not, and like, I mean, it's not something that you're going to do overnight. Like you said, I mean, it's... I mean, you yeah. can, but I mean, it's not ideally. I mean, I wanna... Well, I tell you, both in the ADA and the AACE slash ACE guidelines, they talk about metabolic surgery as, a, as treatment for type 2 diabetes in very high-risk people when you have multiple comorbidities. And it, it's legitimate. You see significant disease management and reduction of medication dependence with metabolic surgery. That's actually one of the things I was going to start talking about trying to, since we're getting towards the end of the episode here, what do you see as like the future of treatment for this? Or do you know of anything that's on the horizon that's going to be those next things that we start recommending? The biggest thing I think that we're going to see coming, first, we've got we've got affordable and accessible continuous glucose monitors. Uh, you've got the Libre I'm not plugging any particular brand. Right. Uh, these are what your Getsy advertised. You've got the Libre and you've got the Dexcom to name two that are out there. You've got the use of technology to help with disease management. So the integration of technology, the AACE, ACE, I think does a better job of integrating tech, technology than I think the ADA does. The big thing medication-wise, I think we're going to see an oral GLP-1 come down the line. And that, I think, is going to be a game changer because part of the problem with the GLP-1 is it has a little bit of a stigma due to the injectable nature. Right. Although it's even most of what weekly, I think, if I remember correctly. You've got liraglutide, which is daily. You've got exanatide, two versions. One's weekly, one's twice daily. You've got semaglutide. Oh, shoot. And I cannot remember the uh, generic for that other weekly one. So you've got three week, four weeklies, a daily, and a twice daily. I want to pick your brain for just a second, if you don't mind. Go ahead. There are other medications out now that, I mean, injectable seems to be the way that a lot of medications are trying to go. And I don't mean diabetes. I mean, like, I can remember, and I don't remember what medication it is, and I wouldn't say it on the air anyway. There's, like, one that's out now for, like, hyperlipidemia that's an injectable. For familial hypercholesterolemia? Yes. And okay. I get it. But I'm like, I have patients who have a hard enough time trying to get them to take oral medications. And you're wanting me to, and they don't, but, and the problem with hyperlipidemia is they don't feel anything different. You know, if you can get their nope. blood sugars controlled, they feel better. If you get their blood pressure controlled, they feel better. If you get their cholesterol under control, they don't feel a damn thing. The group that that's aimed at 
you're looking at very high risk for cardiovascular event. You're looking at, those are the folks that have the uncle that died at 41, dropped dead of a heart attack at 41. Okay. That have ridiculously high LDLs or APOBs that can't get down any other way. And the reason they're at injectable delivery is you're looking at monoclonal antibodies that are broken down in the gut. They're broken. You can't ingest them because they're, they're broken down yes. completely when they're swallowed. So you, ha you got only one delivery mechanism. That's why the GLP one right now is only able to be delivered as, as an injectable because the GLP one protein, that molecule is broken down completely in the gut and not absorbed. So what the companies are working on is a way to delay the absorption and the breakdown of that medication until it gets past the stomach and into the intestinal tract. There is an ADD, ADHD medication, a three-stage medication that is broken down based on pH. It's a 24-hour medication. And stage one is broken down in the stomach. Stage two is broken down in the proximal small intestine. Stage three is broken down in the distal small intestine. And that's how it's, that's how it's, Boy, it, that's how it's a 24 hour medication. Huh. So that's where the technology is going. And that's, and that's part of why the medications are so expensive is the research is leaning towards using antibodies and stem cell research to develop these medications that are specific to disease process and target disease process. You know, you look at the SGLT2 class, you're looking at a, at a drug that focuses in one part of the kidney. Yeah. And instead of allowing the kidney to reabsorb sugar at that spot, it sends the sugar on. The next stage down in the kidney is the SGLT1. And because of the, of the way the SGLT1 works, it cannot reabsorb that sugar. And so that sugar passes into the urine is, and is excreted. But you're focusing in one area. If you stop and think about how the DPP-4s work and, and the GLP-1s. So the DPP-4s, gosh, I'm going to get all twisted up here. That's right. Um, <laughs> they act to sensitize. They inhibit the breakdown of GLP-1 in the body. Okay, You get the GLP-1 lasting longer being more available. So you use a GLP-1 receptor agonist, which improves the affinity for binding okay. the GLP-1. Now, theoretically, you should be able to use those and, and have additive effect. That hasn't borne out to be st statistically significant in studies, but I can tell you that I've used it in practice and seen a synergistic effect on glycemic control. Okay. And yeah, you have to argue it with insurance companies, right. but it works. Plus, you're getting a cardiovascular benefit from both sides. Which is always good if we can protect the heart. Yeah. I'm really picky about using SGLT2s. And as far as, do you mean you don't? You I don't use them very often. Okay. I have a very specific patient population I use them for. You've got, yes, you're going to see improved glycemic control, weight control, and reduction in blood pressure. But you've got a, a problem with microvascular disease. Okay. When you're reducing some of that pressure and you're reducing that volume, you're reducing some of that circulatory pressure. And if you don't have somebody who's got great distal circulation, you are increasing their risk for amputation. Which could be a problem. Yeah. Generally frowned upon. 
Yeah. yeah because what, once we start cutting pieces off, we usually don't stop. Particularly with diabetics, yeah. I mean, that, yeah. So, and that's that's where you're seeing the lawsuits and the and the FDA writ label warnings for increased amputation risk with these medications. It has to do with the cardiovascular, with the vascular and microvascular problems that some of these patients have. So I'm I'm really picky. If I've got somebody with varicosities or significant issues with peripheral edema, that's not that's not the patient for that drug for me. So with so with the, like the SGLT2s, then so it's not necessarily the medication doesn't work because it's working in the kidneys that you're peeing out extra urine. It's work. It's about 350 calories ish. Yeah. It's working, but it's not controlling other things. And that's why we're seeing problems with, like you said, amputations and things of that nature. Not necessarily that it's not an effective medication. It's just the, the risk or in the right patients. It's a great drug, right? The same thing with every one of these drugs Yeah, and the right patient is a great drug. But you have to make sure you've got the right patient. So I have one last question for you. There recently has come out, and it's not a diabetes medication. It's a it's a migraine medication. So it's a biologic, it's an injectable. Uh, yeah. The idea. Being, I know I, the one you're talking about. So the idea being with bio, biologic is less side effect profile because it's supposed to be safer. Do you think, given your knowledge of the pathophysiology of diabetes and medications? You think that's something that we would see at some point with diabetes, something more that acts on it as more of a biologic? I think that we'll, we'll probably see that down the line. Right now, there are so many pathways, metabolic pathways for the disease that we can address. Okay. That I think we're still a ways away from using that. The problem with using a biologic agent is the risk for sensitivity. Okay. Because you're giving if if you're using a biologic agent, you're using a protein, right? So if you're giving somebody a protein in the human body, you're de- running the risk for developing antibodies okay. to that protein. Okay, that makes sense. So I think that we've got so many metabolic pathways that we can work, and this is my speculation. Right. Yeah. I, I could be Tom here and just totally off base. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Tom was minding his own business. Sorry. Calm down. <laughs> I was thinking about my last question for Jeff, but I know what I'm going to switch it to. I, so, I think that we've got so many metabolic directions we can take diabetes care that using biologics right now is still early. Okay. I think we might be looking at it more in terms of type 1 management because it is such it's such autoimmune mediated. Okay. So Tom, what's your last question? Well, it was going to be be along the same lines of what Ben just asked. And basically, do you see a possibility or do you know of anybody working on this is a flat cure? Like, here's a medical procedure or whatever we can do. But I think also to add on to the end of that is, why are you being an asshole to me? I'm just sitting here. So <laughs> I'm sitting here, like, enjoying this conversation, thinking of, like, really interesting things I, I want to do to improve myself and patient care. And then I get Tom. I'm like, what the hell? So okay. let's start at the end. Okay, Dr. Eager Beaver. Um <laughs> Shoot, I even lost what your question was in there. <laughs> Do now, so Ben went like the next step is probably biologic. like a biologic, well, curative, curative, or that's curative. like maybe the next advancement. Yeah, are we are we going to see that someday? Do you think there's an argument to be made about metabolic metabolic surgeries being curative for diabetes? Mm-hmm. Most people 
who have a metabolic surgery, whether it is an adjustable gastric band, gastric sleeve, or a ruin Y gastric bypass, see resolution of diabetes. Huh. Okay. And and I I'd right. heard that before. I just didn't know if that was going to become like, okay, that's our standard treatment because that seems like a, a radical shift. There. It didn't used to be listed in okay. the guidelines as something to consider. This year and perhaps last year, but this year for sure, AACE talks about metabolic surgery as a treatment option for people of very high risk. Very high risk being people with type 2 diabetes and a comorbid, a significant comorbidity, including obesity or hypertension. And if they have a known cardiovascular disease, it is a recommendation that it be uh, strongly considered. Huh. Okay, Jeff. So since you're the diabetes guru, what's your typical like dosing regimen for, we're going to completely go off oral medications now, insulins? Well, which insulin are you talking about? If you're talking about a basal insulin, you can talk about the formulas that are what 0.2 to 0.3 units per kilogram per day right. for moderate therapy, and then 0.3 to 0.4, 0.5 units per kilogram per day. Or I start at 10 units. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if you And if you calculate it out, for the most part, you're going to be right Pretty around close. 10 units yeah. when you do that 0.2. Titration is generally from two to three units every two to three days, depending on the insulin that you're using. If I can get somebody approved on an ultra-long-acting insulin, I would much rather get them on an ultra-long-acting as opposed to uh, Detamir or uh, Glargine. Okay. Tom, do you have anything else for Jeff? <laughs> Nothing I'm going to say on air. Well, so I'll even sit. Gonna... I'll even sit around and, and take the off-air hit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I just I'm like sitting here looking because I make notes pre-production for us to follow, and this is one of the few times I've been writing notes. Like, oh, I need to look this up, and, and like, or maybe I need to pay more attention to this, or look this up later on. So, uh, just informative, and just trying to still kind of digest it all. I thought it was a great interview. Like, well, I've I enjoyed really it too. Enjoyed and it. I'm happy to come back anytime. We appreciate that. And so, I'm going to, uh, you know, we've went way long, so this may end up being two. Obviously, it's gonna be two episodes, possibly even three, uh, if mm -hmm. on how long we go. So, there was an inside joke that was done. <laughs> that well, just hang tight here. <laughs> there was an inside joke that was done. If once we get through all of Jeff's episodes, whether it's two or three, the first listener who can email us admin at just some podcast.com and tell me what that inside joke was, I will buy you a $25 Amazon gift card. So, the challenge is out there. Tom, I'll tell you what the what the joke was when you, we get off air. Because you still don't know if I can see your face. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm, like, I'm, I'm what, personally what, buying uh, it. $25 Amazon gift card. The first person who can tell me what the inside joke was on the, on the Jeff episodes. All right? All right. Jeff, you got anything else to add? No, I'm good. Just just uh, say hi to Mr. Pouty over there. Right. What? <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm going to 